Hey there, my name is Dan Pontifract. I'm an author and a leadership strategist. And these are my thoughts on becoming a love-based leader. Henry Williamson was a 19-year-old private in the London Rifle Brigade and on Boxing Day, 1914, he wrote his mother the following. Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coke fire. Opposite me, a wet with straw in it. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe, presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha ha, you say. From a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh dear, no. From a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day, Christmas Day. And as I write, marvelous, isn't it? Bruce Barnes' father was also in and around the area during the Christmas season of 1914. And he wrote the following. I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and, with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile boach, who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. The boach was a German. And lastly, Captain Robert Patrick Miles of King's Shropshire Light Infantry had this to say about that Christmas day in 1914. Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line, or on our right and left, we can all hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night with white frost, soon after dusk when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently, large numbers of both sides had left their trenches, unarmed, and met in the debatable, shot-riddled, no-man's-land between the lines. Here the agreement, 
all on their own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not allow them too close to our line, and we swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. These stories came from, as I've alluded to, the Christmas season of 1914, where about 100,000 British and German troops became involved in some sort of uh, truce, kind of an unofficial cessation of hostility between the two sides. And what ensued, per the stories of colleagues Williamson, Barnesfather, and of course Miles, was this example of empathy. When these men, you know, pining for home, yearning for Christmas Eve meal, Christmas Day meal, family, friends, jolly old time, when they sort of looked to the other side, in the Germans' case, singing Christmas carols and Merry Christmas Englishmen shouts from the other side and the Englishmen in essence doing the same and singing their own Christmas carols and looking to their side and in each of them as really the story unfolds suggests that they were thinking of others they were looking around saying hmm I wonder how they're feeling over there maybe I should say Merry Christmas eh, we'll give them a song and then to ultimately get up out of those drenched, soaking, ugly, muddy, rat-infested trenches, and to meet in no man's land, to have a cheer, to share in some song, to exchange rations, to have all sorts of kind of camaraderie, including, in certain instances, and one in particular, a football match happened in the middle of no man's land. You see, for me, empathy is one of those key characteristics of being a love-based leader. When one is able to empathize, one feels that love for the other side. Now, Empathy can come in many ways and shapes and forms. So let's kind of let's get to the definition, at least my definition of what I what I think empathy actually entails. And there are a couple psychologists at Columbia University whom I I really like their distinct definitions of empathy. There's three types, as they suggest. Jamal Zaki and Kevin Oshner suggest that mentalizing is how we, quote, explicitly consider and understand someone else's states and sources. All right. The second one is called experience sharing, in which we vicariously share the target's internal states. And the third type that they define of empathy is called pro-social concern. It's when we express motivation to improve the target's experiences. Now, I 
like to redefine things in my way, and much as I appreciate Zaki and Osher's definitions, here's how I see things. In layman's terms, we have rational empathy. Rational empathy is the process in which you sense how others view the world or how they ultimately might intellectually perceive something. So you're going to get into the head of others, into their sort of headspace. That's rational empathy. The second one I like to define is emotional empathy. That's when you're able to feel the pain of someone else. And it's pretty much the best known and used definition of empathy out there. It's the sensitivity that you have for someone else's concerns or situation. That's putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. So we've got rational empathy and we've got emotional empathy. And then the third type I'd like to define is sympathetic empathy. That's when we're observing enough in, in someone else that we actually become motivated to take action. And so maybe someone's under duress and you observe that. Their, their work is suffering and you observe that. But then you're going to do something about that. So you're taking action. So those three types are ultimately the ways in which I think empathy plays out in our world. There's rational empathy, how you sense others and their views on the world. There's emotional empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. And there's sympathetic empathy, sorry. And that's when you're able to take action and, and help someone. Now, empathy is not exactly uh, doing all that well, should I say, in today's organizations. Um there's lots of good data points. Um, there's lots of bad data points when it comes to empathy. So a few organizations have done some research on this. And from a statistics perspective, let's give you some data points. Business Solver uh, took a look at this and did a longitudinal study on empathy in the workplace. And so what they found is that uh, the C-suite, um, well, they, they have a, opinions on empathy and, and 87% of CEOs actually agreed that their financial performance in that for-profit company is actually tied to empathy. And 43% strongly agreed. So that's pretty good. That same study, 95% uh, of employees are more likely to stay in an organization that empathizes with its needs. All right, so almost everyone says, hey, if you empathize with me, I'm, I'm probably going to stay, which is pretty cool. But things kind of go sideways a little bit. When you ask a CEO versus the employee whether or not their organization actually is empathetic. So, I mean, this could be ultimately attribution error case study. Business Solver also found that 92% of CEOs believed that their organizations were in fact empathetic. But... The number plummets when they asked employees. And employees, only 50% of them, believed that their organization 
was in fact empathetic and the number went slightly lower when they viewed their in their ceos themselves and if you're looking for the breakdown uh, inside the organization between genders 71 percent of men believe that their companies actually show empathy whereas only 33 percent of women think that their organizations are empathetic so there is some work to be done and there's some differences between uh, the genders. So while the data is not so hot, what, what can we do about empathy in the workplace? How can you as a leader, you as an individual contributor, anywhere in between, what can you do? Well, you see, when one is empathetic or some call empathic, you know, what, what you're doing is you're basically saying, I care. I care about you. And whether that is putting yourself in the shoes of that individual, whether you're trying to sort out what can be done to progress that person's plight or situation, whether you're trying to interpret how they're thinking about a particular situation, in essence, the three types of empathy I'm referring to with rational, emotional, and sympathetic empathy. What, what you're doing is saying, look, how, how can I help? And so when, it, when leaders are empathizing, they're, they're making a connection. They are connecting to the humanity of that person. They're no longer a number. They're not an employee ID. They're a person. And with that humanity, you know, you're making a connection with them in terms of their soul. May sound kooky, but you're tapping into, you know, their DNA. Who are they? What makes them tick? What ticks them off? What do they want to be? How do they want to be? The first known kind of use of the term empathy was back in 1873 by Robert Vischer, a German. He referred to it as Einfühlen. When you understand individuals, what they're going through, when you feel their pain, when you observe where they're at and say, hey, how can I help that person? You're a love-based leader. At least you're on the path towards one. So how can you be a little more empathizing? <laughs> well, you know, what I don't understand is why more leaders don't wear their heart on the proverbial sleeve. Be you. Be open. There's nothing wrong with being a human and, and having that relationship with the, the team member. And you know all too well that things happen. There are obstacles in, in all of 
our actions, all of our lives, all of our tasks. So expect that to occur with the team member. Understand that they don't want to be ridiculed or reprimanded or made fun of or yelled at. That's not empathetic. You know right away that something wrong is going to happen. There's going to be a mistake. So how do you potentially invest the time in which to relate to that mistake? Oh, you know what? I knew that was going to happen. Or, oh, you know what? That's happened to me before. Don't worry. Or, hey, what do you think we could do you know, differently next time? Don't worry about it. But if you just kind of cut them off at the knees and say, that, that's, that's never going to happen again, right? Think about the fear and the pressure that that individual feels. That's not empathetic. That's pathetic. <laughs> so if you see someone struggling, maybe it's a workload thing. Maybe, maybe they're having difficulty at home with a kid a neighbor, a spouse. Maybe there's way too much pressure because they've got aging parents and they don't know how to handle it. So they're coming to work stressed. So do you add to that stress by pushing them further down the path of derailment? Or maybe do you focus your attention on their humanity, the needs, their heart, their soul? You know, empathy requires sort of anticipation. It requires communication. It requires you to tap in, not tap out. You can't ever possibly know what that individual team member is feeling or wanting or needing, but you can ask. You can imagine. You can anticipate those are empathetic actions. Empathy is, is everything. Maybe that individual needs flexible work or a flexible schedule. Maybe they need to just basically, you know, work from home on Thursdays or Fridays. Maybe... The 40 hours they work could be condensed to 40 hours over four days. Have you ever asked a question of the team member? How's it going? And then really dig in on potentially the benign answer that comes back? Look for not only... an acute issue of the day, but the chronic issues that are piling up. Sometimes those are the ones that are far more important because they're hidden. It's like the iceberg theory. The chronic issues of an employee, maybe maybe you don't see it because they're seven-eighths underwater and you only see the odd acute one pop up and that's the one that you see above water. Iceberg theory. If you are able to understand and appreciate and anticipate the you know the inner life of the employee the fact that they have a life outside of the cubicle the laptop the office the assembly line 
the service line, the customer interactions, that that they have issues and problems, but successes and good things going on too. When you can do that, when you tap in, when you present yourself as a human being to that individual, you are enlightened and they will love you for it. I assure you. When I uh, was raising the goats with Denise, and goats being our children, of course, and they were younger, uh, one of our favorite books was The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. And whilst it is a book, really, at the end of the day, it's a poem. And it's, it's about this tree whom loved a little boy. And as the sort of poem progresses, you know, this boy gets a little older, you know, has played on the trunk and swung from the branches and ate her apples and they play hide and go seek. And it was, it was happy. The tree was happy. The boy was happy. But the boy ultimately grew older. And the tree, as the boy got older, would still ask, hey, come play, come play. And the boy who's getting older is really becoming fixated on himself. You know, he's either too big to play and climb. He wants to go make lots of money. He's, you know, really selfish. And you could you could tell through, you know, this poem, this story, that the tree was, was, was not necessarily okay with it, but was there thinking, okay, I'll be there for you. Don't worry. I'm... I, Okay, you know, you're going to, you're going to, I understand you're, you're struggling, but I'll still be here for you. Okay. And the boy really, you know, didn't pay attention to that thought process, but Silverstein wrote the book in so much as a way that the tree was being empathetic to the boy as the boy grew. Now, fast forward to sort of the end of the book and the boy has basically now turned into a man and has harvested everything from the tree. The branches, the trunk, like everything, right? Built a house, so on. And so the boy who is now very old has come back. And the tree says, you know what? I, I've been pretty good. I've been pretty empathetic, right? I've given you everything I've got. I, I, I don't have apples left. Um, my branches are gone. Uh, I don't have a trunk anymore. And the tree is like, look, I'm out of stuff. I, I've got nothing to give. And I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm just an old stump. And then the boy is like, you know what? I'm old. I don't, I don't really need anything, but thanks for thinking of me. Um, I'm just tired. I just, you know, I just need somewhere to rest. And metaphorically, obviously, he's, you know, entering the age of death. And the tree, who, as Silverstein writes, well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could, 
Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. Even in the twilight of the boy's life, the tree was tapping in to the humanity of that boy and said, I'm here for you. How else can I serve? And that is the lesson of empathy in the path towards becoming a love-based leader. Thanks for listening to me, Dan Pontifrac. More about me and what I do for a living at www.danpontifrac.com. That's www.danpontifrac.com. 